Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Picking up in the second section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And probably not just the Ephesians, probably some other churches as well. Second half of the letter, second section of the letter. And it's fun to look at how many different ways different pastors find to describe or delineate these these two sections. The first section, chapters 1, 2, and 3. The second, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Some will say, well, the first part is Christ's finished work, and the second is our faithful walk. Our identity in Christ, our responsibility before Christ. Our beliefs, our behavior. Our doctrine, our duty. Our position, our practice. The root and the fruit. And then then, then a dozen more. That's where I stopped writing. Because they all point to the same thing, obviously. Paul spent three chapters unpacking, describing the work of Christ in us. And then he hits chapter 4 and he pivots. He takes a sharp turn. He immediately turns to the work of Christ through us. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Because this is who we are, Paul said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, this, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to tell us, is what we should do. If we truly understand who we are in Christ, chosen, saved, raised up, seated together, beloved, as we just sang, we'll likewise understand how we are to be, how we are to act, how we are to walk in Christ. That's Paul's outline for the letter, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two. In our haste to walk that out, though, in our haste to obey God, in our sincere desire to get this right and and walk worthy before the Lord and to please our Father in heaven, too often we put our Bible down and rush out, not walking so much as running, sprinting, without stopping and praying, without pausing and listening, without making sure we're hearing and grasping how God intends for us to do the things he's called us to do. I've told the story before of one Sunday morning when I was a pastoral intern. And it was my job that particular Sunday morning, my post, if you will, was to hang out outside my pastor's office to to make sure that he wasn't interrupted by, you know, dopey, irrelevant kinds of stuff that other people should be handling. And also to, you know, get him anything he needed. Hey, grab the papers off of the printer. Hey, can can you find a, a, a different book for my library? And a lot of times it was, hey, I need another cup of coffee. So I'm sitting outside his office, and I hear his voice from the other side of the door. Hey, Patrick. I open the door. I said, coffee. I'm on it. I close the door. I'm headed down the, here, the hall. And I hear, wait. So I go back. I know how he takes his coffee. Why is it? Yes. He said, I, I got coffee. I said, okay, food. I'm getting you food. I'm on my way. Close the door. I'm headed to food. And I hear, wait. I go back. I open the door. Yes. He said, what are you getting? I said, there is a box of really good donuts. They they went to the good donut shop. He said, yeah, no. I said, okay, no. Close the door. I'm headed down the hall, and I hear, wait. 
I go back. I open the door. He said, are you getting me something? I said, yeah, there's bagels too. I'll, you don't want a donut? I'll get you a bagel. And I close the door. And I head down. And he, Wait, I go back. He said, yeah, I'm doing paleo, keto, whole something, no carbs. I said, oh, no carbs. Got it. Close the door. And I hear, wait. And I go and I open the door. And I'm getting a little peeved by this point because I'm just trying to help. And he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to get you some eggs. He said, what kind of eggs? I said, fried. He said, scrambled. Okay, scrambled. Close the door. And he said, meat. I yell bacon. I don't even go back. I just yell bacon. And he yells sausage. And, and, it, and it, act, it literally happened exactly that way. I was such an eager beaver. I was there to serve, and nothing was going to get in my way. Not even the guy I was trying to serve. I was genuinely trying to get it right. I wanted more than anything as a young intern to walk worthy of God's call on my life. But in my zeal, I ran right past the guidance that was available to me. The person I was trying to serve knew what he wanted. He knew exactly how he wanted it to happen. If only I was willing to wait, to listen, to, to abide. How much more so does the God that we desire to serve know what he wants and know how he intends to bring about what he wants if we're willing to wait and listen and abide? I think so often of the beginning of Acts 13. Rewind our, our life of Paul's study almost to the beginning. Acts 13, Paul, he was Saul back then, and Barnabas and others are leading the church in Antioch, that, that beachhead of the early church reaching out to the Gentile world. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit said to them, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And if that was me back when I was a pastoral intern, I would have jumped up from that prayer meeting. I would have headed out the door. God has called me to do a thing, and I'm going to go do the thing. Do you know what the thing is? No, but I'll figure it out on the way. But these guys were, were more mature. They, they continued to sit before the Lord. And verse 3, then having fasted and prayed some more, even after God spoke, then they laid hands on them and sent them away. They were sent out, verse 4, by the Holy Spirit and went to Seleucia and Cyprus and all the other places that they went. That's the right way to do it. That's the biblical model. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Seek God, wait on God, and when you hear from God, then step out and obey God in the power and in the character of God for the glory of God. Be led and be being led by the Holy Spirit. Scripture talks about this explicitly elsewhere. So here in the opening verses of Ephesians, Paul isn't teaching it. He assumes we already know it. He says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, and never endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's not teaching us how to live and how to serve. He assumes we already know. He's reminding us to walk out your faith. How? I'm not rhetorical. I'm asking, how are we to walk out our faith? Paul says here, in love, which is fruit of the Spirit. Love, as expressed by joy, peace, patience, 
patience, a.k.a. long-suffering, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, it's there implicitly. Once, once, once you look for it, you can't not see it. How do we serve the Lord? Same thing that was just modeled for us in Acts. Paul's taking it for granted here in Ephesians 4, but it's clear we serve the Lord empowered by the Holy Spirit. What, what, what is our ministry when you get right down to it? It's, an, it's the outworking, it's the overflow, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul's not teaching that here. He's assuming we know that. But he's also reminding us of it. He's keeping the idea in front of us as he begins this section, chapters 4, 5, and 6, talking about how we live our lives and how we minister our ministry and how we walk down our faith, which is good. It's good to be reminded how we do that because we need to be reminded, don't we? Which is why Paul's not done. He's going to keep coming back to the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives again and again for the rest of this letter. And then he's going to pick it up again in Philippians, and he's going to hit it again in Colossians, and he's going to hit it again in the pastoral epistles, because it's critically important that we always remember and never forget God calls us to live and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're, you're looking at me, yes, Patrick, we know, move on. I can't. <laughs> Be, because, because too often we know it, and yet we don't, live it. We know it, and, and then we, we skip right past it. And we shouldn't be able to, because back to Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, Ephesians 4, verse 4, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There it is again, in you all. How is God the Father of all in us all? In the person of the Holy Spirit. It's like Paul can't get through a sentence without reminding us of that. So I feel led of the Lord this morning to let him remind us of that. We're headed to a more explicit discussion of ministry a few verses down. Verse 11, we get to the part where he said, call, God calls some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, and, and so on. But, but on our way to getting there, before we get into the, to the tactical, the structure of ministry and the gifting and the calling and the different offices, I think God would have us take a morning and let Paul remind us, let Paul exhort us to not lose the foundation of our ministry, to not divorce our ministry from the Spirit of God. And I'll be honest, I don't really have an outline this morning. <laughs> I just have a burden. And I'm going to be bold and, and say I have a burden from the Lord to say the quiet part out loud. To take what Paul is assuming we know and highlight it, emphasize it, underline it. To call out that on our way to do the, doing the cool things that God has prepared for us, the good works he prepared beforehand for us to walk in, on our way to Seleucia and Cyprus and all the other places, you know, our versions of them, we have to be like the elders of Antioch and not forget the how. We need to walk worthy of our calling, knowing and doing the right things, but also doing them the right way. Led, empowered by the Spirit. And Paul reminds us of that in verse 7. I know that so far we haven't read anything that we haven't read before. We, we're away for a couple weeks. 
But as we push forward into verse 7, Paul continues to remind us of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our churches and in our ministries. To each one of us, grace was given, verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. But is a little awkward here. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I I don't know. I might not have said but. I might have said yet. Or even still, because, because but makes it sound like Paul's contradicting himself. And he's not. He's, he's clarifying. He's not saying, hey, it looks black, but really it's gray. No, he's been talking about unity in the body, right? Verses 4 through 6, he, he literally invokes the, un- the idea of unity seven different ways. One body, one spirit, one hope, and so on. We're called to unity, he just said. But verse 7, he goes on to say, he adds, he clarifies Unity in Christ does not mean that we don't also enjoy diversity in the Spirit. Same Holy Spirit indwells all of us, all of us who have believed on the gospel, all of us who have trusted in Christ's death as payment for our sin, all of us who have gone to Christ and asked forgiveness. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's part of what it is to be saved. But the expression of the Holy Spirit in us varies tremendously from person to person, doesn't it? The expression of the Holy Spirit varies. One way it varies is in the diverse gifting the Holy Spirit gives us. We're one body, but really different parts. Which isn't new. It's the same idea that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Diversities of gifts with the same Spirit. Differences of ministries with the same Lord. Diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. We read it there a few years ago. We read it in Romans last year. Romans 12, 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy, or ministry, let us minister, and so forth. Same God, different gifting. Different roles, different positions, different opportunities, which is where, again, Paul is headed next, verses 11 and 12 and following. But but stay big picture with me this morning. Stay big picture with Paul this morning. Before we get there and we talk about those different roles and responsibilities, what do they have in common? All of our different giftings from 1 Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians, they're they're all outworkings of the same Spirit dwelling in each of us. They're all part of the grace that the same God has bestowed upon us through Christ. They're an expression of grace, Paul says in verse 7. Grace. Such an important word. When we were in Romans, we talked about how we tend to get sloppy with words like grace. And we use Other words, like mercy, almost interchangeably, because a lot of times they do show up together. And grace and mercy are similar, but they are not the same. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, not getting the justice we deserve. We were sinners. We rebelled against an eternal God. We deserved eternal punishment. And justice would have relegated us to hell forever. That's what we deserved. But Jesus chose to stand in our place. Jesus took our punishment upon himself, satisfying God's justice and allowing him to meet us, what? With mercy. We don't get what we deserved if we go to the cross. 
if we ask Jesus into our lives. But the benefits of the cross don't end with mercy, and this is important. At the cross, we not only find mercy, at the cross we find grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting benefits we don't deserve. At the cross, God lavishes benefits upon us, benefits like adoption into his forever family, assurance, we can know that we know that we know that we're saved, inheritance, the riches of Christ are ours. And, Paul told us back in Ephesians 1, the down payment on that, the, the surety, the, the guarantee of that is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us today and, and, and with him purpose and power and wisdom and guidance and what Paul's been talking about, gifting. Verse 8, Paul comes back and he, he underlines this. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Gifts specifically in context, spiritual gifts. Paul's paraphrasing Psalm 68 here. He's paraphrasing, he's, he's referencing it, he's not quoting it exactly. He's, he's more pointing at it for the purpose of application. Psalm 68 is a psalm of triumph. It's a song to be sung in a victory parade. Israel heading back to Jerusalem, the soldiers alongside the prisoners who have been liberated, making their way, bearing the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord with it, ascending to Jerusalem, ascending to the temple, to the place of worship. See, that, that's the idea that Paul's invoking here. But verse 8, he applies it not to the ark, but to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, having prevailed at the cross, Jesus, having defeated sin and death and Satan, Jesus leads those who are prisoners of sin and death and Satan forth in a, in a similar victory celebration. And as we follow him to the throne, we don't so much give him gifts, we receive gifts. We give him our praise, we give him our worship, yes. But what Paul is saying is that we also follow him to the throne to receive gifts. We share in the spoils of the victory won by Jesus and distributed by Jesus, our king. To, to the victory goes to the spoils, right? And part of those spoils, part of our share in the bounty of Christ's victory is the gifting that Jesus bestows through the Holy Spirit, which, which Paul continues to reiterate. Now this, verse 9, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descends is also the one who ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And there it is again. How does Jesus fill all things? How does he fill us? By indwelling us with his Spirit. That's the important part. Don't let the first part of the verse distract you. Paul, in trying to clarify something in verse 9, actually introduces something that Christians like to argue about, at least in some circles. What are these lower parts? Is that where Jesus goes into Sheol and, and, and opens up the paradise half of Sheol and leads those souls to heaven? Maybe, but let's leave that debate aside for today. And if you absolutely can't let it go and you need to talk about it, grab me afterwards. Because if we get caught up in that debate, we're going to miss the big point. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna miss what Paul is actually trying to say here. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, because it's not the point. <laughs> what Paul is saying, the part that we can all agree on, is the same thing he says in the beginning of Philippians 2. Jesus came down 
We're clear on that, right? Humbled himself, became a man, set aside prerogatives of divinity, set aside the privileges of being God. He remained God, but he set aside the privileges of being God and tabernacled on the surface of the earth with us as a man, as one of us. And then at the cross, he was brought lower still. He was shamed. He was ridiculed. He was stripped naked. He was crucified between two thieves. And even lower still, he became sin. But that same death, the death that brought him lower than low, and and did plunge him into Sheol. He said to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That same death allowed him to be exalted, given the name above all names. King of kings, Lord of lords, who gives good gifts to those who follow him. Gifts including the Holy Spirit, who, let's rewind and replay, unifies us, verse 5, dwells in us, verse 6, gifts us, verse 7, fills us, verse 10, who calls us to different ministries, verse 11, but always with a common purpose, to worship and glorify and rejoice in and serve Jesus. All of which is why Jesus said, John 16, 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. Speaking to his guys the night before the crucifixion, they're starting to figure out he's going to die. And he says, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, he'll come to you. I'll send him to you. Jesus, even today, is fully man as well as fully God. The resurrection, the ascension, they did not reverse the incarnation. Today there is a man seated at the right hand of the Father. Limited the same way that we are. He can only be in one intersection of space and time at one, at, at one time. So Jesus says, it's good that I leave. Because if I leave and I send this Holy Spirit to take my place, he can indwell all of you. And my presence and my power and my peace and everything that comes with the Holy Spirit can be with you, all of you, everywhere that you are, everywhere that you go, all over the earth. That's why Jesus also said, Acts 1-4, don't start ministering until he comes. <laughs> Being assembled together with them, he commanded them. Jesus commanded his guys, his disciples, men and women both, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Don't just do something. Stand there, Jesus says. Don't go trying to do ministry in your own strength. Wait for the baptism of the Spirit. Wait for Pentecost. And then you'll be able to do ministry in my strength. In my power. With my wisdom and my character. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no ministry. Not really. Appearance of ministry, sure. The illusion of ministry, the form of of ministry, but not the substance. Because true ministry obtains its purpose, its plan, its power, even its personality from the Holy Spirit. And the product of true ministry is always praise of Jesus. Because that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 14. Holy Spirit doesn't call attention to himself. And the Holy Spirit doesn't call attention to the one he indwells. The Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus. Long story less long, without the Holy Spirit, there is no true ministry. And we keep messing that up. 
This is up the Young Men's Study yesterday. We were looking at the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Theme of the study is brothers. And so we're going through scripture looking at examples of brothers, both good and bad. We know the story of Isaac and Ishmael, most of us, right? God promises Abraham a son. From the son, descendants, sands on the seashore, a great nation, and ultimately the redeemer of all nations. That son, of course, is Isaac. But before Isaac is born, Abraham gets impatient. Abraham's not trusting in the Lord's promise. He decides to help God out. Let me give you a helping hand, Lord. It doesn't seem to be happening. Let let me give you that little bit to put it over the top. And he conceives a son with his wife's servant. Galatians 4, Paul talks about this. And he he does an interesting compare and contrast between Isaac and Ishmael. He points out how Ishmael was born of the flesh, of works, of human effort, as opposed to Isaac, who was born of the Spirit. Not a divine birth, but God supernaturally intervened in in Abraham and Sarah, who who humanly should not have been able to conceive and allowed them to conceive. And Paul says, yeah, they were real people. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac. But their lives, Paul says, Galatians 4.24, their lives were also symbolic. Ishmael is a picture of our first birth, born under the law. The life that's characterized by what? Strife, grief, trouble, torment. Isaac is a picture of being born again. Life from lifelessness. Life from someone who who admits that they're dead. And Isaac's life from the beginning is characterized by the things that characterize our life as believers. Joy. Freedom. Unlike Ishmael, Isaac wasn't born a slave. Power. He was Abraham's son, and Abraham was arguably the most powerful man in the region. He was a child of promise and an heir to everything that Abraham owned. We can keep going with that. It's a great study. But the reason I bring it up is, is too often I look at the church in America, I look at the church around the world, and I see that we're settling for Ishmael ministry. Ministry that's our idea, not God's idea. Our strength, not his strength taking matters into our own hands rather than trusting the Lord, relying on works rather than gifts, engineering results in the flesh rather than depending on the Spirit, leaving grief and strife and division in our wake when what should be trailing behind us is joy and unity and compassion. We're supposed to be building up the church, verse 12, edifying the body of Christ. Instead, and, 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 and look, with the best of intentions, like me as a pastoral intern, with the best of intentions, our Ishmael ministry ends up tearing things down. Talked about this indirectly a couple weeks ago, a couple Wednesdays ago. We were in Jeremiah 21, 22, 23, 24. Jeremiah's calling out the leaders of Jerusalem, kings, priests, prophets, all of them, telling them you're wrong, you're not listening, you're not repenting, you're forcing God to do what he doesn't want to do, which is hand all y'all over to Babylon. And he, and he spoke the truth kind of brutally. Maybe that's not the right word. Unflinchingly, unapologetically. He didn't sugarcoat it. Because it needed to be said, and that's what God gave him to say. But we read in chapter 23, the weight of that ministry almost crushed him. He spoke the truth, but he didn't do it arrogantly. 
He didn't do it smugly or self-righteously. He did it almost despairingly. Jeremiah 29, 9. My heart within me is broken, he says, because of the prophets, because of these guys that I've got to talk to and what I have to say to them. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man. I'm staggering around like a man who's, whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. Jeremiah wasn't trying to prove anything with his ministry. Wasn't trying to earn points with God. Wasn't trying to demonstrate his righteousness to anyone who was watching. He wasn't trying to call attention to himself at all. He was just ministering in obedience. And that obedience came at a price. It cost Jeremiah to serve the Lord. It cost him physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And the only reason he did, he makes it clear other places, the only reason Jeremiah did what he did is because the Lord led him to, the Lord called him to. Nothing about Jeremiah's ministry was his idea. He gained nothing from it in worldly terms. Gained nothing from it cost him much to serve the Lord. What a contrast to many of the so-called self-appointed prophets of our day. I'm speaking specifically of those who appoint themselves to so-called discernment ministries. My ministry is to keep pastors and teachers and churches accountable. And they will often compare themselves to Jeremiah and other prophets, those who were sent by God in the Old Testament to correct the priests and to rein in the, 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 the religious leaders when they started to color outside the lines. There's a place for, for those ministries, sadly. If pastors were faithful to the word and faithful to their wives... <laughs> If church leadership did a better job of holding themselves accountable, both to beliefs and to behavior, then the bloggers would be out of a job. When ministries and ministers embrace error and cover up sin, we're begging for outside scrutiny. So I'm not despising those who are truly called to it. Sadly, it's necessary. I grieve those who appoint themselves to it, and especially those who enjoy it so much, who do it with what seems to be a spirit of vengeance rather than humility. I've seen pastors savagely attacked, not for teaching and defending false doctrine, but for misspeaking on live radio, for not expressing themselves Clearly, doesn't matter, it's error. And error has to be called out, error. And, and error makes you a false teacher of false teaching, and you're false. Does that build the church? I've seen pastors fall. I've been up close and personal when hidden sin is revealed. And so have many of you. It's horrible. It's tragic. It's devastating. Families torn apart. Church families ripped apart. Every time it happens, there are people who will leave that fellowship, and there are always people who will leave Jesus. I've never seen a pastor fall where, 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 where some people didn't decide, okay, I'm just done with Jesus. I'm done with the faith. And those who remain, some of you know, have a hard time ever trusting anyone again. So announcing this is a weighty thing. Needs to be done. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. It needs to be done, but it's not something to be celebrated. The fall of a minister, the collapse of a ministry, is something to be deeply mourned. 
but for at least some of the people working hard to uncover the truth about this pastor or this person or this ministry. It seems like it's a personal triumph for them when it happens. I brought down another one. No, Satan brought them down. You're just dancing on their grave. Those are harsh words, and you might be saying, Patrick, come on. You don't know the heart. You're, you're right, I don't. But I can look at the fruit. Paul tells us to look at the fruit. Jesus says, look at the fruit. Jesus says, my ministry is lowly and gentle. Which means that ministry done in his name is lowly and gentle. We know lowliness and gentleness when we see it. And we know what it looks like when we don't. What's the opposite of spirit? Flesh. What's the opposite of gentle? Vicious. What's the opposite of lowly? Prideful. Those are the things that flavor our ministry when we uncouple it from the spirit. That's the fragrance of our ministry when we choose Ishmael over Isaac. I'm doing the Lord's work. That's what I've gotten back when I've, when I've engaged some of these folks in conversation. When, I, when I've attempted dialogue. I'm doing the Lord's work. Except that's what Abraham said. Or at least what he was thinking. And what he found out is there's a big difference between doing God's work our way and letting God do his work his way through us. Looks different, sounds different, smells different. Only one is the fragrance of Christ. Another easy example. The social media explosion that happened after the Super Bowl and the airing of this year's version of the He Gets Us commercials. He is in Jesus, gets us, washes feet and, and you know all the things. I didn't, I, I didn't love it. Just, just being honest, I didn't love it. It wasn't great art. The production value was meh. Concept was muddy, and, and it didn't convey the gospel. Not how I'd spend $80 million, or whatever it was that they spent. That was the number that I heard. But, you know, based on the venomous outcry in some circles, you'd think they were torturing kittens and puppies on live television. They did not share the gospel, that's true. But if you ask the people who commissioned the, the commercial, the ad, whatever you call it, they would tell you that's not their goal. And, and we should give them the benefit of the doubt and listen to what they say their motives were rather than imputing motives to them before we accuse them of being this or that, woke or, or, or false Christs or anything else. What they're saying is, hey, our goal was... Was, was to provoke conversation. We wanted these pieces to be a conversation starter specifically aimed at people whose hearts have been hardened against the gospel, people who think they know what they think about Jesus in the hopes of maybe opening up a conversation that otherwise wouldn't take place. You can agree or disagree whether that was a worthy goal or, 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 or worthwhile investment. I probably disagree, but... It doesn't matter. It's out there. <laughs> so now that it's out there, the question is, what do we do with it? Do we ignore it? I, I'm not part of that. I'm a different kind of Christian. They're, they're over there, and I'm over here. And Do we attack it? Or do, or do we let God redeem it? And talk with some of the 124 million people who saw it about Jesus. Because no, they didn't hear the gospel. And I think that's regrettable. But they heard the name Jesus. 
What are we doing with the opportunity? I wouldn't have done it that way. It, it, me neither. <laughs> but is that the point? I was talking to a brother in the no another part of the country. I used the Dwight Moody line. Somebody said to Dwight Moody, I don't really like the way you evangelize. And he said, you know, there's times I don't like the way I evangelize. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> I might have been a little self-righteous when I said it. <laughs> but there's a real point there. There's, there, there's plenty in that campaign to discuss, to debate. There are things that, to, to legitimately object to. But as we do, are we debating in the spirit? Are we debating as Isaac? Are we correcting those that we disagree with in a spirit of gentleness? Galatians 6.2. Or are we coming at them as Ishmael? Coming at them in the flesh? Attacking with the spirit of viciousness? You're wrong, which makes me right, which makes me better. What, what's our goal? To humbly serve the Lord or to feel superior? To follow God and walk in his ways? Or to try to prove something? The whole thing reminds me of Luke 9. Disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus says, look at this child. Whoever receives this child receives me. What's he saying? He's saying it's not about power, it's about humility. Are you, really, are you ready to take the last place? Are you willing to stoop down? But of course, they don't get it. And immediately afterwards, John goes to Jesus and said, we saw somebody casting demons in your name, and he's not one of us, so we told him he better cut it out. Jesus says, no, don't do that. If he's not against us, he's with us. If he's not against us, he's on our side. And they still don't get it. So the very next episode, in the very same chapter, Samaritan village turns Jesus away because he's got his sights set on Jerusalem. James and John, John who Jesus just rebuked, Go to him and say, can we call down fire from heaven? Can we go all Elijah on him? Can we nuke him, Jesus? And Jesus says, you don't know what, spirit, what manner of spirit you are. Son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Why didn't they get it? They didn't get it because they couldn't get it. Because the spirit had not yet fallen upon them. They're trying to follow Jesus in their own strength. They're pursuing their own ideas about what it is to serve, ideas that revolved around power and judgment and vengeance instead of humility and mercy and compassion. James and John were hoping their ministry would please God, would earn them points with God, would bring them closer to God. And again and again, Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. We don't minister our way to God. We minister, if it's true ministry, in grace and gifting that are from God. We work our way out from God and the Spirit of God, indwelt by God, serving in the character of God, not, not comparing ourselves to others, not lording over others. When we get to chapter, or I'm sorry, when we get to verse 11, I mean, there's, there's, there's a wide open opportunity to talk about practically, tactically, concretely, how do we serve? What are the opportunities here in the community? And, and we're going to go there. But before we do, it's so important to hear, to, to, to internalize what Paul is saying here. We have to understand 
before we get into the concrete business of doing ministry, ministry has to be conceived and born and carried out in the Spirit. Isaac ministry, not Ishmael ministry. Led by God and the gifting and character of God for the glory of God. Gospels tell us again and again that's the only way it works, right? Pharisees tried the other way. They tried the other way again and again. They, they, they believed if they acted godly, they would prove that they were godly. If they acted righteously, they'd be righteous. They tried that again and again, and they tried to put that trip on other people only to have Jesus tell them again and again, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right except for the part where you're exactly wrong. You, you have it precisely backwards. The way righteousness works, the way that the, the godliness works is the opposite of what you're trying to do. You can't achieve godliness from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Godly living starts with surrendering. And that surrendering, that yielding, lived out, is the walking, is the serving. Was at a marriage retreat. Ann and I were, were leading a marriage retreat last week, and a lot of you came. And that was such a blessing. Um, there was a time of Q&A in the afternoon. And a lot of times I try to get the questions ahead of time so I can pray and study and think about what I'm going to say. And this one isn't one of those times. I just... <laughs> and someone not from, not from our church asked, hey, we're parents of a middle school girl who was asked to a middle school dance by another girl. And all of her friend group and a lot of her teachers really pressured her to say yes. And she said no, and we're proud of her for, for standing in her convictions, but we want to know how to continue to fortify her to stand against this, this wave of culture. I mean, it's a heartbreaking question, right? My daughter's 22. These are things that she didn't have to deal with even a decade ago. So I prayed one of those really quick Nehemiah prayers. Lord, help, help now, amen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, what, and what God gave me to share revolves around what Paul is telling us this morning. We can't make it about religion. We can't make it about rules or codes of conduct or conformity to one set of expectation as opposed to another set of expectations. Because if that's what we teach our children, and let's be honest, if that's what we teach each other and expect of each other, all we're imparting to the church is legalism. We're teaching people to be great conservative voters. But what happens when those teens move out of the house? What happens when they go to college? What happens when they get married? What happens when they join the armed forces? What happens when they're living an Ishmael life out in the desert, dry as dust, with no relationship, with no vitality, only thou shalt and thou shalt not, rules and expectations not attached to anything, not attached to anyone, they will quickly trade them in for a different set of rules, for a different code of conduct, for a different religion. We have to, and I tell our youth leaders this incessantly, 
The, the, the DNA of our youth ministry is relationship, relationship, relationship. Because from a relationship with a righteous God will come forth righteous behavior. But trying to instill righteous behavior in kids who really don't have or own a relationship with Jesus, who are riding on their parents' coattails and their parents' relationship with Jesus, it never, ever, ever works. The Pharisees proved that. So many churches are falling into Ishmael ministry. This looks righteous. This sounds righteous. This seems righteous. This is what righteous people do. So I'm going to be over here doing, doing these righteous things. And it's backwards. If we're here, if we're in Christ, we've been made righteous. We are righteous. We don't have to earn it or achieve it or even prove it. We need to trust and believe and abide in it. We need to trust and believe and abide in Him. And as we do, the Spirit of the living God will teach us righteous actions, will lead us in righteous behavior. We don't need to prove it. Jesus already did at the cross. At the cross, when he rose from the dead, he proved his promises were sure. He proved we are his beloved. He proved that the helper would come to indwell us. We're going to celebrate communion. And Jesus tells us, in giving us this ordinance, this observance, he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And I think when he said that, he had in mind something more, something greater than just the meal. So much to see, so much to take away from the Passover supper itself. But I think Jesus had in mind not just the meal and the conversation that he and the guys had over the meal, but the conversation that followed, the conversation that began in the upper room and continued as they walked together and ended up in the garden. A conversation in which Jesus said, John 15, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. John 15, 3, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. You're forgiven if you believe on me, Jesus says. But here's what happens next. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. That's the next dimension of the relationship. And it's an important dimension. Because as the, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. Grayson, why don't you come on up and we're going to do communion slowly this morning. We're going to distribute the bread and the cup separately. So as the, as the guys distribute the bread first, hang on to it. We'll partake together. But consider that 
the bread broken. Points us back to Jesus and points us back to a death on the cross that wasn't an end but a beginning. The beginning of the church. The beginning of this new creation Paul talked about in the first chapters of Ephesians. Jew and Gentile united and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. His body broken marked the end of the old covenant, the covenant of works. The end of Ishmael. And the beginning of a new covenant. Covenant of grace. That we enter into and rejoice in and honor when we walk as Isaacs. Consider these things. Consider what it is to abide in the vine as the guys distribute the bread, and we'll partake in a moment.
pass through death, it occurs to me there's two meanings to that. There's two ways we can take that. There's the physical death entering into glory, but there's also the death that we died when we came to Christ, when we were born again. And of course, it's a, it's a slow, ongoing, lingering death, isn't it? It's a battle that goes on within us. And in that sense, we very much depend on Christ and cling to him and let him supply day over day, moment over moment, the new life that his death on the cross made possible. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the price that you paid in your body and in dimensions beyond our understanding, the wrath that you absorbed in your being. Jesus, teach us to walk out and to live in these new lives, empowered by your Spirit, no longer constrained or condemned by our works, but liberated and empowered by grace. Let's partake together. <laughs> 